Okay, so I uh, just want to go back very briefly uh, to uh, Hemingway's um, letter to John Dos Passos just to <laughs> remind us um, what we are uh, up against, um, this claim um, on Hemingway's part. Um, and Mrs. George Kaufman is here, and she claims they want to cut it all out, the Indian camp story, cut the in-our-time chapters. Jesus, I feel all shocked to hell about it. Of course they can do it, because the stuff is so tight and hard, and everything hangs on everything else. So you know, this is the um, very recognizable uh, posture on the part of Hemingway, that everything is tight and hard, and everything hangs on everything else. So, but given the publication history of um, the various chapters and also the stories published separately, um, you know, whether or not there is in fact um, an organic unity uh, among them, that's the big question. And last time, um, you know, we tried to give him the benefit of the doubt and we read the interchapters and the stories as if they were indeed organically um, integral. Um, to one another. So today we'll um, try that, try uh, some other combinations. Uh, but I found this picture of um, Hemingway and Dos Passos. Um, so you know, Hemingway is to the far right, and that's Dos Passos uh, to the far left. And um, I was always loved this. Um, and, and they actually both wrote about war. Um, Dos Passos has a novel called Three Novels, uh, Three Soldiers, a very, very uh, great novel about war as well. So you, know, you can sort of see that they have a lot in common. Um, and um, here's another important uh, letter uh, to Edmund Wilson. Um, this is um, slightly earlier. Um, Finish the book of 14 stories with a chapter in our time between each, to give the picture of the whole between examining it in detail. Like looking with, with your eyes at something, say a passing coastline, and then looking at, at it with 15x binoculars. Or rather, maybe looking at it and then going in and living in it, and then coming out and looking at it again it has a pretty good unity. So once again, that all-important word for Hemingway, um, pretty good unity. And that's very strong claims, not really pretty good, it's damn good. Um, but in any case, uh, what's, all, what's new about this um, description um, is the idea of zooming in and zooming out, right? So this is very much the approach that we've been taking. Um, and we've been thinking of it in terms of micro and macro, right? So this. Um, the first set of terms that we started out with. Um, and today, I'd like to add um, a few more terms that sort of line up um, in a kind of similar way, obviously not the same, um, but they're kind of interrelated. So uh, micro, macro, um, obviously up close from a distance, um, before and after, and that's especially important uh, when the soldier is coming back home. Uh, what happened during the war, what happened after the war, um, and going along with that intensity uh, of the experience when you're in the war, and as we know from the story Soldier's Home, the staleness of it when you come back. Um, and then another pair of terms very important to our class actually is strategy and comedy. Um, since this is a writing class, I also want to stop for just one minute um, and talk about this as a kind of a useful 
uh, analytic and organizational structure to use um, in your papers. Um, so start out with one pair of analytic terms and then try out the various variations of that term um, in the course of the paper. Um, and that will give you a, a really tight structure, is that's what Hemingway wants. Um, so I'll explain this more, but just keep this in your mind. Um, you know, think of your papers um, as theme and variation. Use inventing different terms um, that would allow for that theme and variation structure. So I'll talk more about the substantive implication of that. But for now, I think that this is really what Hemingway himself um, is doing, because such a great writer, it's a good example to us. Um, so anyway, um, the four today we'll be looking at four uh, possible clusters. You know, want to emphasize that these are just conjectural clusters. Um, we can test them. Um, the first one is uh, chapter uh, seven and soldiers' home, uh, and then we'll be looking at chapter nine and Mr. and Mrs. Elliot, hilarious story. Um, chapter ten and cat in the rain, and then chapter twelve. Um, and Big Two-Hearted River, part two. Um, so first, chapter seven. Um, once again, we're back in wartime Europe, the experience of combat. Uh, while the bombardment was knocking the trench to pieces at Fusata, he lay very flat and sweated and prayed, oh Jesus Christ, get me out of here. Dear Jesus, please get me out. Jesus, please, 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 Christ. The shelling moved further up the line. We went to work on the trench, and in the morning, the sun came up, and the day was hot and muggy and cheerful and quiet. The next night, back at Mestra, he did not tell the girl he went upstairs with at the Villa Rosa about Jesus, and he never told anybody. So this is the sort of the classic dynamics of before and after, and the intensity of the experience when you're in the thick of the battle, and the sense that you really have lost it all um, once that experience is behind you. Um, so what Hemingway is exploring here, and that he would, will see he'll also explore at greater length um, in Soldier's Home, um, is the intransitive relation of emotions across time. Uh, it's a terrible thing. Um, you know, we think so much about the question of sustainability. It's important for things to be sustainable across time. Um, and it seems that Hemingway is saying that basically intense emotions are not sustainable across time. And we'll see this in a big way, actually, um, in Faulkner, in The Sound of Fury, in the Quentin section, whether or not, even when we're devastated by something, whether or not that sense of devastation uh, will be with us even a short moment afterwards. Um, so it seems that when he's fearing, you know, in, in this kind of mortal fear for his life, um, Jesus, um, and, and that's really a, a, a kind of a name for something, you know, it's not necessarily Jesus, although in this case it actually is Jesus, but Jesus could also be a shorthand for something that we really want just to invoke, and it's very much a presence for us at that moment. And then the meaning of Jesus is completely lost, even the next night. Um, so um, what's, what's, what's interesting, and I guess quite bleak about this, um, is that we really can hold on to our own experience, right? You know, we like to think that 
if we've been through this, that is ours for good, is ours for life, um, and it seems not to be the case. So uh, let's move on now to soldiers' home, um, and you know we know. Um, I'm just realizing the mic is all the way down. Um, we know that it's crabs with a soldier fighting in basically all the famous battles in World War One, um, and then he. He comes home too late, so by which time all the other people have been back and they've been telling stories about war atrocities. So you know nobody's listening um, to him anymore, um, and his mother is just worried that he should find a job. Um, so this is um, the the very um, near the middle, just one line near the middle of the story. Having breakfast, uh, perhaps is reading the papers and worrying about um, you know. Um, his father not wanting the paper to be roughed up. Um, and then meanwhile, Krabs looked at the bacon fat hardening on his plate. Um, and I think that that is, in some sense, the most graphic metaphor um, that Hemingway has come up with, material emblem of our own relation to our own experience, that this is the chemical transformation. You know, it's so natural. I mean, last time we talked about the naturalization of pain, right? You know, childbirth is as natural as rain, and the pain that we inflict on others um, is also as natural as rain. Um, and here, um, for fresh experience to go stale, it is as natural as the bacon becoming stale on your plate. Um, so that's just a kind of a, you know, using a very common object um, to talk about um, the fate of emotions across time uh, and the fact that to go on living um, is not cumulative. Um, there's a loss until the longer you live. I mean, this is a terrible thing. You know, we like to think that some things can, you know, be cumulative, but according to this paradigm, um, it's almost as if the longer you live, um, the more you lose, actually. And we know that Hemingway actually chose to end his own life, right? So this is almost um, a, a kind of, um, I mean, he's, he wasn't thinking of suicide at that point, at this early point, but it's almost a justification for suicide that you want to end it at the moment of its greatest intensity and greatest emotional satisfaction. You don't want to lose that. Um, so there's that, the bacon fat hardening on his plate. Um, and then the very end of the story, well, that was all over now anyway. He would go over to the schoolyard and watch Helen play indoor basketball. Um, no detail is trivial, no detail is random, well, not always, but quite often. I mean, you know, this is a very significant detail um, in Hemingway. Um, and it is, once it's, it's almost the, the kind, of, um, uh, kind of a larger, uh, slightly larger view, moving away from the bacon fat on the plate to the larger family situation. Um, Krebs was a very good soldier during World War I. He's not a very efficient player in civilian life, right? Helen is the player. She's literally the basketball player, but she's also a player in a bigger sense. She's more consequential in life than Krebs ever would be. Um, and it's the sadness of being consequential 
being utterly consequential, important, very good at what you're doing in one context, and being terrible, being, you know, not attended to, not listened to, uh, being completely on the sidelines once uh, you're put in a different kind of situation. So Krebs is on the sidelines, uh, a mere spectator, um, as Helen plays both the indoor basketball and also the game of life that he's probably not going to be very good at. Um, so obviously, the, these I think these two stories, um, the connection between them, very very tight. Um, you know, they are in two different settings, but they really are making exactly the same point. Um, so let's move on now <coughs> to a more um, interesting kind of not so quite so clear cut uh, between chapter nine um, and Mr. and Mrs. Elliot. Uh, so chapter nine is. Um, in many ways, the kind of the Hemingway that we're very familiar with, the Hemingway in The Sun Also Rises, the Hemingway who talks about bullfights, he also does it in The Death in the Afternoon. Um, so this is um, the kind of classic Hemingway. Um, the first, except there's a twist here, um, the first matador got the horn through his sword hand and the crowd hooded him. The second matador slipped and a ball caught him through the belly. He hung on to the horn with one hand and held the other tight against the place. And a ball rammed him, wham, against the wall. And the horn came out. And he lay in the sand and then got up like crazy drunk and tried to slug the man carrying him out, uh, carrying him away, and yelled for his sword, but he fainted. The kid came out and had to kill five bulls because you can't have more than three matadors. Um, you know, this is the, the emotion, I think that actually is the dominant emotion in, in our time. This isn't exactly tragedy. It doesn't rise to the level of tragedy, but it's not exactly funny either. And this is really the combination of the tragedy slash comedy um, that is so important to Hemingway. Um, nobody gets killed except for the bull, five of them, um, but that's supposed to happen. Um, the first, there are two completely incompetent matadors. Um, they're making a farce, really, of um, the bullfight. Um, and meanwhile, it's also farcical in a different way that you have to stick by the rules. Even though the two first two matadors are making a complete mess of everything, um, you still have to go by the rules. So you can have more than three matadors, and so one single person is to kill five bulls, because that's the rule. Um, so you know, this is the kind of the combination we don't know whether to laugh or to cry. Um, and um, I guess we laugh, um, because it's not worth crying over, but it really isn't all that funny. And this is the nature um, of the kind of very complicated, dark um, kind of comedy that we get in Hemingway, and that will be getting in Fitzgerald and Faulkner as well. So this is the, really the common ground. Uh, very interesting um, compounding of genres. Usually uh, we're used to thinking of tragedy and comedy as two discrete genres, quite separate. Right? But in American literature, um, I mean, this is really goes back to the 19th century. In American literature, quite often there's the kind of a mixing of genres uh, with tragedy uh, being energized, actually, 
uh, by comedy um, and producing a really interesting uh, kind of experimental genre. Um, so, okay, so that, keep that in mind, it's about bullfighting um, and incompetent matadors and then the kid having to clean up the mess. So it would seem, on the face of it, it would seem that that really couldn't have any relation to Mr. and Mrs. Elliot, which has nothing to do with bullfighting. It's about a poet or someone who's trying to be a poet and his wife and so on. Uh, but there's a very interesting history behind this story. Um, and Mr. and Mrs. Elliot, with the story, um, was first published in the Little Review. Last time we talked about how um, a lot of the pieces came out in Little Magazines, right? So this is the Little Review. Um, 1924, 1925 edition. Um, and then it came out again in, in our time, obviously, um, the liberal right edition, uh, the American edition, 1925. Um, and it turns out that Hemingway actually has written a very um, telling letter to Horace liberal right. Um, you can see it here. Uh, I mean, actually, I think that if you go to classes for you to uh, look at the image online. You should be able to zoom in and actually look at all the words. But anyway, this is the transcript of um, one of the paragraphs. Um, as you will see, I have revised the Mr. and Mrs. Elliot story and entirely eliminated the obscene image. It is a shame. It had to be changed. But as you say, it would be a very silly play to get the entire first book suppressed for the sake of a few funny cracks in one story. James Heath ran it in his original form. This is the Little Review, editor of the Little Review. Uh, Jane Heath ran it in the original form and did not get into any trouble. Okay, so we're talking about a libel suit, it looks like, um, that um, legal action um, could be visited upon. Hemingway, because of this story. So what could be the cause for this legal action against Hemingway? Um, the title of the story is suggestive, right? You know, Elliot is a kind of very important name in both American literature and British literature. Very, very important name. Um, <laughs> this is T.S. Eliot, obviously. Uh, known to Hemingway, they were, they, they were in the same circles in, um, in, um, both in England and, and also in, um, in, in France. Um, and um, T.S. Eliot, with one of the most important poets, 20th century poets, best known for the poem The Wasteland, uh, would go on in 1948 to win the Nobel Prize. So, you know, a major poet. Um, and uh, it, he, um, this is uh, a picture of, um, of his first wife, Vivian um, and Elliot is on the far right, and Vivian is on the far left. Um, and it was a marriage that ended in divorce, and with uh, Vivian uh, having lost lots of mental problems. So it was a kind of a very uh, public uh, dissolution of the marriage, but very painful actually, uh, when she was uh, clearly going crazy. Um, so um, it, it the. the Hemingway's story uh, isn't really about that, but it's really making fun um, of something that really didn't end up being all that funny. I mean, it was a kind of a horrendous episode uh, in T.S. Eliot's life. Um, but the way that Hemingway is 
talking about it initially, um, is, um, is, is this. Uh, this is his version. And as you'll see, he's actually changed the spelling, right? T.S. Eliot, just one L. Um, and so you know, just to remove the threat of legal action from himself, uh, he's changed the spelling um, of Eliot. Um, and this is the story that he tells. Uh, Mrs. Eliot and a girlfriend now slept together in the big medieval bed. They had many a good cry together. In the evening, they all sat at dinner together in a garden under a plane tree. And the hot evening wind blew, and Elliot drank white wine. And Mrs. Elliot and her girlfriend made conversation. And they were all quite happy. Once again, you know, this is the happy ending in quotation marks in Hemingway. Um, so, but you can really see why this would, that, that, that the Elliot, or at least T.S. Elliot, um, would contemplate legal action um, against um, Hemingway, obviously, the suggestion of a lesbian relationship, um, not um, really, uh, there was nothing actually in the actual life of Vivian Elliot to suggest that there was a lesbian relation. Um, she did have an affair very soon after she was married to T.S. Eliot, um, but with a man, um, Bertrand Russell, actually a famous philosopher. Um, so um, there was this, this, this is complete fabrication on the part of Hemingway. Um, but I think that there's actually possibly something else that's mixed into this story. It's the lesbian relationship that stops this from being a tragedy, right? You know, it really would have been quite tragic. Um, you know, if the girlfriend had not been there. But it's really this three triangular relation that enables Mr. Elliot to drink white wine and to spend all night writing poetry. He doesn't especially want to be in the same room with his wife. Um, and uh, Mrs. Elliot and the girlfriend have many a good cry together in the big medieval bed. Um, and they were all quite happy. So. Um, Hemingway really um, is, in one sense, thinking of the historic uh, T.S. Eliot and Vivian Eliot, but I think that he was also actually thinking of another couple, very good friends of his at one point, that he um, talks about at great length in a movable feast. Another iconic figure in American literature, Gertrude Stein, and her companion, um, lifelong companion, actually. Uh, Alice B. Toklas, that's Gertrude Stein on the right and Alice um, on the left. Um, and um, Hemingway also makes fun of them um, in a movable feast. But um, he, if um, actually, if you guys have seen um, Woody Allen's Midnight in Paris, um, if you haven't seen it, try to see it on DVD. Um, but the Gertrude Stein is very, very important there um, as it's really a mentor um, to, to Hemingway. I'm sorry, um, you know, we actually thought of um, showing this, but it's still running, so you know, we don't have it on DVD to show it. Um, but in any case, uh, if you see that Woody Allen movie, you'll see that Gertrude Stein was crucial um, both to other young writers, but also to Hemingway. Um, and so a very um, long-lasting, this is actually a sustainable relationship, the lesbian relationship. Um, for life, really, um, and happy as 
much as any relationship can be happy. Those two are very, very happy. So I think that what Hemingway is, has, has done, actually, uh, to produce this um, tragedy slash comedy um, is to compound the very unhappy T.S. Eliot uh, marriage to Vivian with a much happier companionship between Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Topers. Um, and um, I mean, he really wasn't thinking of um, libel from Gertrude Stein. She is not mentioned by name, uh, but she could not not have been on his mind. So it's just a really interesting uh, kind of a capsule summary, actually, of a lot of American literature um, in there. Um, so I think that that's really the connection uh, with uh, chapter nine. Um, not so much the subject matter. There's no bullfighting in the story. Um, but the kind of the tragedy uh, narrowly averted, uh, turning into a comedy or a kind of a farce, uh, halfway between comedy and farce, um, that is the ultimate outcome uh, of that kind of unusual arrangement. Um, and but still, you know, it doesn't rise to the level of tragedy, um, and that's the most important point for Hemingway. So um, let's move on now uh, to the next cluster. Um, and I should stop here for a moment um, and talk a little bit about um, the kind of the uh, stru analytic structure that we'll be using for the next, um, next set of, uh, of um, stories and chapters. Um, but actually beginning with chapter 9 and Mr. and Mrs. Elliot, uh, we're beginning to see a kind of a logic of substitution, right? So the Gertrude Stein, Alice B. Toklas uh, relationship taking the place, the, this relatively happy relationship, taking the place of the unhappy historical relation between Vivian and here's Elliot, so that Hemingway can get to a place where he wants to be. Um, and so taking the place um, substitution is a good thing in, in, in that chapter and um, in that story. Um, we'll explore the, mini the meaning of substitution in the other clusters. Um, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not so good. Um, it's always kind of a mix, mixture. Um, but um, on the whole, I would say that Hemingway's is is much more interested in comedy than, than tragedy. Um, and here, um, I'm sort of going against Aristotle, and in fact, the whole tradition uh, was then thinking about genres. Tragedy is the high, uh, dignified, very dignified genre, uh, Greek tragedy. Um, and that's what really Aristotle talks about in the poetics, is his attention is really argument to tragedy. Comedy gets about two lines um, in the poetics. Um, so, you know, I think that um, tragedy just has a, a different kind of um, centrality to, uh, to the entire Western canon. Um, but comedy, arguably, is actually just as interesting and just as complex. So um, in the rest of the course, we'll be thinking about the ways in which comedy actually is right next door to tragedy. Um, you know, we have to rethink the landscape um, rather than thinking of these two as being on opposite ends of the spectrum, um, to think about a kind of um, almost a kind of emotional proximity 
uh, between tragedy and comedy, um, not because this is a natural proximity, but because the writers that we're looking at, um, they tend to have you know, that really kind of interesting kind of thinking and mixing uh, of genres. Um, so in the next um, cluster, chapter 10 and Cat in the Rain, uh, we'll first of all look at um, one kind of substitution taking place in chapter 10, um, the horse and the picador, uh, and then the, the cat in the cat in the rain. Um, I should mention that um, there's a difference between the picador and the matador. Um, this is a distinction that I didn't know about before I started reading about Hemingway. Um, is that the matador is the one who actually sticks, you know, who, who actually kills the bull. The bull. Um, the picador's function is to weaken the bull. The picador never actually kills the bull. So it's always a kind of a three-step ceremony. The bull, by the time he comes out, the bull is weakened already uh, by various people sticking knives into him. Um, and then the picador tries to do a major job of weakening the bull. Um, and then the matador comes out and actually kills the bull. Um, and the, the picador doesn't actually come out on foot. He's always um, on a horse. And, um, and this we um, find out how Hemingway feels about that practice, um, about the picador coming out on a horse and fighting the bull. Um, they whack, whack the white horse on the legs, and he kneed himself up. The picador twisted the stirrups straight and pulled and hauled up into the saddle. The horse's entrails hung down in a blue bunch and swung backward and forward as he began to canter, the monos whacking him on the back of his legs with the rods. It's a terrible thing. Actually, this has been banned. Now. It's been banned in many Spanish cities um, because it's just so um, incredibly cruel. And here are two images uh, of um, that kind of substitution, shameless use of the horse as a shield um, against the bull. Um, and um, we can see um, the expressions on the, I mean, you know, they're used to it. I mean, this is done all the time. This is not exceptional cowardice on the part of the picador. That's, the, that's part of the game. Um, and, uh, but still, it's very hard to take when you're looking at it and um, to, to see the entrails actually coming out right at that moment. Um, and here's another um, image. They're just countless images. Um, all you have to do is to type in picador's horse on Google and you'll find all these images. Um, so um, it's um, Hemingway, even though he's a big uh, aficionado, um, of the matador coming out and we'll see his celebration of this one-on-one -on -one battle between the matador um, and the horse um, just finds this practice utterly despicable. I mean, this is really substitution at its worst. Um, and so he's talking about, you know, this kind of, um, just, just kind of, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to wrap our minds around, um, you know, this kind of completely ritualized uh, practice. Um, and so that's what he talks about um, in chapter 10. And then in Cat in the Rain, once again, there's no thematic continuity, right, between uh, the chapter 10 and the Cat in the Rain about a young American couple in a hotel, completely, you know, nonviolent um, 
setting um, and doesn't seem very dramatic either. In, in some sense, it seems as if nothing happens in that story. Um, but uh, there is a kind of interesting uh, way in which we can read that story um, as a story about substitution as well, um, in the sense that the young wife does have one very emphatic desire anyway. I want a cat. She said, I want a cat. I want a cat now. If I can't have long hair or any fun, I can't have a cat. So the cat obviously is a shorthand for something else, right? I mean, she's actually looking at this kitty in the rain, not trying to hide from the rain under the table, and thinking of the cat. Uh, and she says, okay, you know, if I can't have anything else, I can have my own silver at a table, I can have new clothes, I want um, a cat. But even those things, eating at a table with my own silver, even that is probably just a metaphor for something else as well. Um, and so the wanting a cat, the fact that it's such an artificial and unpersuasive substitution for something that she doesn't have in her life, um, suggests that there is something um, that, that this very peaceful story um, does have something in common with a very violent episode uh, in chapter 9. And it, it really has to do with, um, with, with, with the way uh, we think about what is adequate um, to, you know, what we could call a good life or a good marriage or, you know, good anything. I mean, you know, Hemingway isn't really thinking, especially it, this story is about, you know, what constitutes a good marriage or what is absent that would make for a bad marriage. Um, but it really is um, thinking generally and abstractly about what counts as a good life or what counts as being a good uh, player in a bullfight. Um, and coming out and using your horse as a shield, that doesn't count as, 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 as merit um, for Hemingway. Um, so um, in, in this case, um, it's in the, the, the wife, if we think about the configuration, she goes out in the rain, an umbrella opens up behind her, and it's a hotel maid that opens up the umbrella behind her. Um, she says, I want a cat, I want a cat. Um, and in fact, I'll just uh, read you the ending of that story. Um, someone knocked on page 94. Someone knocked at the door. Avanti, George said. He looked up from his book. In the doorway stood the maid. She held a big tortoise shell cat pressed tight against her and swung down against her body. Excuse me, she said. The padrone asked me to bring this for the signora. First of all, there's kind of a very sly substitution going on, because I don't think it's actually the same cat. This big tortoise shell cat probably isn't the same kitty that she saw earlier in the story. So there's one kind of almost comical substitution going on. But the more important substitution in the story, other than just wanting the cat for something else, to stand for something else, is also that instead of 
the husband being the emotional support for the wife. It is the hotel apparatus that has substituted, has stepped in, and is fulfilling that function. The hotel maid is the one who opens the umbrella when she, the wife steps out into the rain. She wants a cat. It's the hotel staff that brings the cat. So it is, this is, this is uh, for me, this is one of the best and most um, memorable portraits of, uh, of, of what's missing in uh, a marriage that is just done you know, in a couple of pages um, and done completely through uh, third parties, right? I mean, so this is a story about, supposedly about husband and wife, and it's almost told completely through third parties, through the cat, through the hotel maid, through the patroni. Um, and so it says something about Hemingway's um, strategy as well. And this is really something to think about uh, for all of the writers, is how to frame the story and how to populate the story. Um, and the population uh, of what is in the foreground um, in the story isn't necessarily uh, the, the you know, the center, I mean, the housemaid is front and center in this story. The story isn't really about a ho the hotel maid, um, but nonetheless, she is in the foreground, as is the cat. Uh, so, you know, what is really, what is the story about? Um, this is a good question to ask, actually. This is another uh, question that is re related to uh, writing papers. Um, start out by thinking, you know, what is this particular paragraph about? I mean, you know, certain things are in the foreground, but it could be that something much more marginal could actually be the real subject of that paragraph. So, you know, it's always a good analytic strategy um, to think about. Um, gosh, never thought. Is, is it mine? It's not mine, right? It's not, yeah. No, for, for some reason, I just thought, um, oh, good, you know, that would be really a big embarrassment. <laughs> um, but um, in any case, um, <laughs> So, uh, well, I mean, here's a little act of substitution or whatever. Uh, but um, so far, we've been um, talking about um, the clustering of the stories in the chapters, um, you know, really kind of going in a kind of a bleak direction, right? You know, it's, it's not this, the lack of emotional satisfaction seems to be the main point in all of the stories. Um, and that's really the, um, the, the kind of the tragedy, comedy, slash comedy, um, is the lack of adequate emotional resolution. There's just no emotional uh, resolution at the end of uh, The Cat in the Rain. There's no emotional resolution at the end of Soldier's Home. Um, there's maybe a little bit of emotional resolution at the end of Mr. and Mrs. Elliot, but really not, not that great. Um, so the question is, um, you know, is, is, is this um, a kind of a natural uh, resting place for Hemingway? You know, is, is that the, the kind of the emotional landscape um, that he feels most comfortable with? And that would be completely okay. You know, I think that is a viable way of writing um, and you can have great literature resting on precisely that very a precarious state of lack of emotional, lack of full satisfaction, lack of full resolution. 
Uh, but I think that Hemingway actually um, is, is a slightly different kind of writer. Um, so he, he is um, quite um, unashamed of, of going uh, to, um, to a kind of a sometimes almost embarrassing extreme in the sense that you don't want to show that this is really what you believe in. So it's embarrassing in this sense. Um, but he's, he's, he's not especially embarrassed uh, about, uh, about making it very clear. Um, what he believes in um, and what he finds satisfying. And I think that that's really what makes Hemingway um, what he is. Um, it's very, uh, in many ways, very emphatic about belief uh, and about emotional states that he would affirm and celebrate. Um, so let's look at um, chapter 12. This is the combination that shows uh, that side of Hemingway. Um, and uh, it's uh, not surprising, it's back to bullfighting, uh, but this time it's not the picador on his horse. When he started to kill, it was all in the same rush. The bull looking at him straight in front, hating. The bull charged, and Villato charged, and just for a moment, they became one. Villato became one with the bull, and then it was over. Pilate standing straight and the red hilt of the sword sticking out dully between the bull's shoulders. Pilate, his hand up at the crowd and the bull rolling blood, looking straight at him, looking straight at Pilate and his legs caving. Um, so some of us would find it gory. I'm, you know, I don't think that I would have been saying the praises of bullfighting, um, but I think that just to think in terms of what Hemingway is doing. For him, this is a truly um, sublime and satisfying moment for both the matador and for the ball, because the repeated line is that they became one, right? So um, they became one. That is the supreme ideal for Hemingway. Um, instead of having this uh, shield um, of the horse shielding you from the ball, you are in direct contact with the ball. And whatever you do, um, you do it in other lack of distance. So, you know, this is the kind of the close up, the d d diminishment of distance. Um, and the two of them really bonding so tightly that it really becomes a kind of a, a single unit. Um, and that, that this could be a metaphor for any kind of thing, you know, can be a man or a boy, can be a man or a woman, can be two women, um, can be you and the project that you become fused with. Um, but for Hemingway, um, this kind of complete lack of emotional insulation, we've talked about uh, the question of insulation uh, in Indian camp, but the complete lack of emotional uh, insulation between yourself that and something that you feel utterly passionate about. Um, that for Hemingway is the is is the place that he really wants to get to, and all those times when he doesn't get there, you know, you can see that why it's kind of a frustrating uh, uh, resting place, and he wants us to be frustrated when we can't get beyond those places. Um, so this is um, a kind of a, a very um, the kind of a classic Hemingway uh, moment of epiphany uh, of achieving this union uh, with the thing that the bull that you're going to kill. And the fact that you're going to kill this creature doesn't 
according to him, doesn't really matter because you've achieved that union at that critical mm -hmm. moment. Um, so uh, this is, um, we are not reading um, The Sun Also Rises, but this is an almost completely parallel um, moment in The Sun Also Rises, uh, Pedro Romero um, killing the bull. The bull charged as Romero charged. Romero's left hand dropped the mulatto over the bull's muscle to blind him. His left shoulder went forward between the horns and the sword went in. And for just an instant, he and the bull were one, right? So you can see that that word one is a critical importance to Hemingway. Um, two entities becoming one, um, even though at the moment of death and killing, um, it's still important to achieve that oneness with the world. Um, so, you know, it's, I'm sure it's romanticizing bullfighting, um, but it's actually one of the rare public demonstrations of that happening. You know, it's very, actually very hard, I mean, if we think about this, it's very hard to see two things becoming one in public. Uh, so bullfighting is actually uh, one of the rare instances when, uh, when everyone can be there and watch. Um, so um, Hemingway probably was looking at something like this, um, and you can, it's really more like a dance. Uh, than, than, than actually the killing of the ball. I mean, you can see why he would want to romanticize something like that. It's really completely uh, choreographed in such a way uh, so that the violence becomes completely ritualized um, and we don't, almost don't see the blood and there's no blood um, in, in this moment. Um, so anyway, so for, for Hemingway, uh, completely unembarrassed desire to get to this state were one. Um, so let's move on now, and I have to say I actually like the Big Two-Hearted River much more than, than the bullfighting scenes in Hemingway. Um, this is a great story, um, in many ways, a kind of a rewrite, two-part story, a uh, rewrite of crabs coming home, right? So it's, this is also a soldier's home. Um, he's not among his family, um, but uh, he is on this trip um, you know, through a country that is not really disclosed to us, a landscape, we don't really know where it is. We don't know where he's going or why he's on that trip, but it's a fishing trip. Um, and this is what happens uh, uh, at the moment when uh, Nick catches, and uh, Nick, this is the same Nick that we see growing up, the young Nick in, Indian camp and the doctors and doctor's wife. Now he's a full-grown man, obviously, and having been uh, in war. Uh, but coming back and going through um, what appears to be a healing process for Hemingway, right? So in Soldier's Home is about the non-healing of crabs, you know, the trauma of war and the trauma of being completely marginal and being sidelined. All of those things um, will just keep hurting him. Um, in uh, the case of Big Two-Hearted River, it's a rewrite of that and a very different outcome coming out from that story. Um, and it has to do actually with uh, similar dynamics to the bullfighting. Um, so Nick cleaned them, slitting the trout. Nick cleaned them, slitting them from the vent to the tip of the jaw. All the insides 
and the gills and the tongue came out in one piece. They were both males, long gray white strips of nail, smooth and clean, all the insides clean and compact, coming out all together. So this is his, uh, just as emotionally satisfying as the bullfighting, not in the sense that we don't have to choreograph movement quite as dramatic and beautiful as in a bullfight, um, but to be able to extend uh, the ritual of dying in one piece to the trout. Um, that is, you know, we do have to kill the trout, I mean, you know, unless we're going to go without any kind of um, animal protein. Um, so um, the um, the, the, the trial is the kill, uh, but um, the way, the manner of killing is everything, that there should be no degradation um, in death, um, that the, actually the measure of a good life um, is first your ability to offer a good death to someone else, right? You know, so we do this all the time. Um, it makes all the difference in the world whether we kill brutally or whether we kill ceremoniously uh, with full respect for what we kill. Um, and uh, it also makes all the difference in the world uh, if you die a good death. Um, there's really no other conclusion. So, you know, it has to, it has to be uh, completely clean and satisfying and um, both to the person who's going, or the, op, the, the creature who's going through it, um, and to the person who's performing that operation. Um, so there's actually, um, as far as I can see, um, Hemingway is actually a very affirmative uh, writer um, at the end of In Our Time, um, in the sense that he's also revising his own story, right? You know, he's not, he doesn't get to where he wants to be in Crab's story, in Soldier's Home, he comes back and tells the story one more time, and this time he gets to where he wants to be. So we'll um, uh, say goodbye to Hemingway now and move on to uh, Fitzgerald and the Great Gatsby on Tuesday. <laughs>